Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our, Our teaching team, team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith hope, and love. hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because, because they, they anchor us in something, something which can, can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching our reading is from acts 17 22 through 31. then paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said athenians i see how extremely spiritual you are in every way For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all peoples to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps bumble about for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For... In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Well, hello again, everybody. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who are... Twins fans, I believe the ball Joey Gallo hit yesterday is currently orbiting the fourth moon of Saturn. Uh, five home runs yesterday? Uh, that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty good. He's on our team. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good thing. So, yeah, yay sports ball. <laughs> good morning again. My name is Dan Cook. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. At Genesis, and it is wonderful to have you all here today and with us. Uh, to those of you here in the chapel, and to those of you who are joining us at home or online, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for being part of this community as well. Uh, and I want to quickly echo and affirm everything Will said earlier today. Happy Mother's Day to those who celebrate, and we are definitely with all of you who lament and, and struggle on days like this as well. It was really, really well said. Thank you, Will. We are uh, in the sixth Sunday of Easter tide. 
We've talked about this before, that Easter is not just a one-day event. It was not just a one-time thing. It's an entire season on the liturgical calendar that lasts until Pentecost, which is the last weekend of May coming up here. So we've got two more weeks left in this season of Eastertide. And over the course of that time, we've talked about how resurrection is something that has happened, that is happening, and that continues to happen. Again, not a one-time event, but something that flows through the Christian tradition and through Christian history. And I think that leads us to a fairly natural question, which is, as, under that understanding, as resurrection people, what does that do to us? How does that change? How does that affect how we live? If we believe that Christ was risen from the dead and that we are now participating in the fruits of that resurrection and that we too one day will be resurrected, what do we do with that? How does that affect how we live? How does that affect how we interact with each other in our community here at Genesis? And how does that affect how we live in the outside secular world? Those are obviously enormously broad questions, and no 25-minute sermon or even a series of sermons is going to be able to fully answer those questions. But that's what we like to do here at Genesis, right, is jump into questions and dig around and investigate and look at different aspects of them and see what, what God has to tell us through His Word. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks, this week and next week as well. We'll talk about how we live as resurrected people. Next week, we're going to talk about pain and suffering, which is a really good advertisement to come to church next week, right? Because who doesn't want to hear about that? Heavens. But the truth is that pain and, pain and suffering are part of life. And, and as people who live in this resurrected milieu, we have to talk about those things. We have to deal. It has something to tell us about how we live into those moments in our lives. So we're going to talk about that next week. But this week, what we're going to talk about is how we live out our faith in public. How do we interact with people in the outside world as Christians, as resurrection people? What is that, how does that inform the way that we do interactions out there? And Paul has something to say about that in this particular passage. It also brings to mind a word that carries a lot of baggage for some people. And so I want to quickly address it, set the word aside, and just talk about the concept. But the word, of course, is evangelism. And I can hear people puckering as I say that. Evangelism, evangelical, evangelicalism, these are all you know, words that are entangled together. And there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of trauma that goes along with those words for a lot of people. Not everybody, but for a lot of people there are. I know all kinds of horror stories about people who were told what they have to do to be a quote-unquote Christian, and that included stories of manipulation and stories of spiritual blackmail. And I thought about even sharing a story or two like that, but I think they're just entirely too triggering for some folks, and I don't think it's entirely necessary to get at the point. I say all of this to say that I don't generally want to use that word, but I want to talk about the concept. There was, there was a time in my life where I thought that that word, that evangelicalism or evangelical or evangelism could be redeemed. I was perhaps a little naive in that thought. And then I read a book called Jesus and John Wayne. Some of you may have read that book. I highly recommend it for those who aren't triggered by that word. If you are, yeah, you know, there are other books. <laughs> but that book in particular does a wonderful job of telling you the history of the evangelical movement, the conservative evangelical movement in America and how that got tied up with issues of patriotism, of nationalism, of militarism, how those things kind of got entwined. 
And again, I thought at one point in my life that you, know, you could pull those two apart and get back to the original meaning. I, I, you know how I love getting geeky with Greek words, and there is a word, euangelion, from which all of those are taken, and the meaning is simply sharing the faith. And I wanted to go back to that original meaning and grab a hold of that meaning and say, no, we can hang on to this. We don't need all the rest of that baggage. And then I read that book and went, mm, maybe not. Maybe not. But again, the concept, I think, is one that we are called to. This idea of sharing our faith is important, and we have to talk about it. When we look at a passage like Acts, this passage from Acts 17, it demands that we talk about it, because it's exactly what Paul's doing. So there are two things right off the top that we have to get out of the way. One is that not everybody is called to be Paul. Let's just get that out there, okay? Not everybody is called to be the great defender and the great advocate of the faith. God does call people to do that. They're called apologists. I'm grateful for them because I'm not one of them. And I'm glad they exist. There are people out there that are good at that sort of thing. I'm not. God love them. They're, they're wonderful people. I'm glad that they're there. Not everyone is called to be out in the public square doing debates and doing advocacy and you know, shouting from the rooftops. I'm glad those people exist, but that's not my role. It's not a lot of our roles. So when I was in seminary and I got a class list, and one of the very earliest classes was called Missional Outreach and Evangelism, because what flashed into my mind as I saw that title is, oh my gosh, they're going to have me on a street corner handing out pamphlets somewhere. I can't do that. I'm not, no, that's just not going to happen. No. And that's not at all what that class turned out to be. In fact, what that class turned out to be about, we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes, but it was so inspiring to me what that class was about. I ended up TAing for that professor for that class and actually another one that he teaches as well, several semesters going forward. That's why I say we got to get past how that word can affect us in negative ways and get to the heart of it. So the first thing, again, is that not everybody's called to be Paul. The second thing is that the Great Commission is real, and we can't just ignore that either. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we are supposed to have an influence on other people, hopefully a positive one, hopefully one that inspires them to believe that a relationship with Jesus is a good idea. Church fails at that quite often, but that's the idea. And that's real, and we have to grapple with that. And I want to suggest to you that there's a spectrum, right? There's the Paul end of the spectrum that we just talked about, and then what I'm going to call the Francis end of the spectrum. And many of you are familiar with that quote that's attributed to St. Francis. Always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. As I studied it, turns out I don't believe Francis ever actually said that or wrote that. But it's been so assigned to him in Christian tradition, and people are so aware of it in that fashion, we're just going to call it the Francis end of the spectrum, okay? Those that use fewer words and try to let their acts do the talking and speaking about their faith for them. But it is a spectrum. Most of us fall somewhere in between our ability to use words effectively and our ability to just let our actions lead the way. The other thing I learned as I was investigating that St. Francis quote is that some of our more fundamentalist conservative brothers and sisters really hate that quote. They really don't like it. I mean, there are blog posts about blog posts about blog posts from places like the Gospel Coalition and things like that. They don't like it at all. And to a degree, they have a point. Because what they'll say is that the gospel is too complex to be communicated through actions alone. 
right? They'll say that putting, the demonstrating the love and the grace and the mercy of God is a good start, but it's only a start. That in order to talk about our place in God's re, uh, reconstructing, restorative, renewing mission of all of creation, that requires us to use some words to describe not only what God has told us that he intends, but also our role within that plan. And I don't think that they're necessarily wrong about that. I do think that they like to skip past the demonstrating part and get right to the describing part a little too quickly. I think if we spend a little more time focusing on getting the demonstrating of God's love and grace and mercy down, then when we got to the describing, it would be a lot more effective in terms of convincing people that we might have something that we're on to. So most of us fall somewhere on that spectrum, somewhere in between using, you know, being the great defender and using, letting our actions do our talking. So as we find our way towards a balance in that regard, what does that look like? That's where we come to Paul in Athens in this passage from Acts. Quick background. Greek philosophy in the time of Paul, in the time of Jesus, and actually for hundreds of years before that, was the height considered to be the height of Western intellectualism. These were the smartest of the smart people. These were the people that defined what it meant to be intellectual. And of course, at this time, Rome dominated the socio-political landscape of this entire region. And Rome loved them some Greek philosophy. They modeled so much of their government, so much of their faith system on what the Greeks had done for hundreds of years prior to that. And the Greek philosophers themselves, of course, were perfectly happy to be put on the pedestal by this dominating government in Rome. So as Paul shows up in Athens, he's talking to some of the elite thinkers in the entirety of the Western world. This means words are going to be very, very important. How he chooses his words, how he communicates with them become very important. So when we seek to understand how to be resurrection people in a secular society... Paul's words have a lot of meaning for us. And there's two points that we very quickly get to as we start to dig into this passage. The first word he says, according to the NRSV in this particular passage, is Athenians. Immediately identifies his, his audience. And that's the first point, is to know your audience. Which sounds trite on the surface, I know. Am I doing a sermon? Am I doing a TED Talk? What's going on here, right? <laughs> but know your, knowing your audience in this context means focusing on relationship. And that's a very Christian thing. When I talked about that class, Missional Outreach and the E-Word, what it came down to in that class wasn't standing on a street corner handing out pamphlets telling people they're going to burn if they don't repent. It meant being in relationship with people. It meant getting to know them for who they are before we ever have any kind of conversation about faith and about conversion or whatever it is. Relationship was the key to the whole thing. There's an old cliche that says that people don't care what you know until they know that you care, which is very gross as cliches go, but there's truth in it. There's a ton of truth. As with most cliches, there's a ton of truth there. People don't really care how many facts and figures and rhetorical arguments you can spit out if they don't think that you actually care about who they are, where they're from, their context, their culture, their situation. They're not really interested in your intellectual arguments. They're interested whether you actually care about them or not. So knowing your audience, knowing who you're talking to as these words become important is crucial, is everything. If you don't start with relationship, all the words in the world, all the fancy words in the world aren't going to matter. 
Which leads to the second point. How do you do that? Well, you look for God in the other. That's what Paul's doing here. If you read that first sentence of him that he says in verse 22, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. So right off the bat, Paul's letting them know that he's learning about them. That whatever, whatever follows, whatever he's about to say, he's less concerned about himself. He's somewhat less concerned even about the God that he's going to preach about. He's more concerned about who they are, what their cultural context is, where they're coming from, and how to find God in them. Which is what he does. He finds God in Athens, in a pagan city. He finds God. Verse 23 tells us he finds this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And right away he says, well, I can tell you about that unknown God. And it's not a surprise that Paul would find God in this other context. In his letter to the Colossians, in chapter 1, Paul says, For in him, referencing God, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, those are very earthly things, earthly systems, right? We tend to think that those are human creations, not God creations, and yet what Paul is saying is no. God creates everything. God holds everything together. And that means other cultures, and that means other faith systems. So we shouldn't be surprised to find bits of God, bits of God's truth, in other cultures and in other faith systems. That's not an argument for universalism. It's not an argument that all roads lead to the same place. It's a whole deeper discussion that would require another another sermon. But it is the core truth that God is in all. And we can find bits of God in all. And finding those connections is crucial to having these kinds of conversations. And that's what Paul's doing. There's a uh, New Testament scholar named Bridget Green talking about this passage. She says, in his observation of what was foreign to him, Paul discovers purpose in the altar to the unknown God that enriches his anthropology and theology. He understands the Athenians' belief system, which allows him to deepen his own belief and give expression to it. Relationship, remember, is a two-way street. As Paul teaches, he learns. As Paul learns, he teaches. It's not one way. And we get that wrong way too often. We just want to spout our whole tract and have that be the end of it. And Paul's listening is way more important than speaking in Paul's world here. He's constantly looking for those connections. If you look at verses 26 to 28, from one ancestor, he writes, he made all people to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him though he indeed is not far from each one of us. Us is not Christians, us is humanity. He's including the Athenians as he says that. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Paul's constantly trying to find those connections, trying to find bits of truth and bits of God in these other cultures. That's how he's making connections. That's how he's choosing to be in relationship with these folks. Because, here comes another cliche, the things that unite us are stronger than the things that divide us. Again, very cliche, 
also very true. And I believe the church, unfortunately, forgets that in its zeal and its fervor for political and cultural power sometimes. We tend to focus on the things that separate us instead of the things that bring us together. But if God is in all of those things, if God holds all things together, then that's what we should be focusing on, the things that connect us, the things that bring us together. That's what builds relationship, and that's what God asks us to do. Yes, there are differences, and there are very important differences. And Paul addresses some of those in this passage, and I'm not ignoring them as I pick through the verses here. If you look at verses 24 and 29, Paul has a very direct critique of the use of idols in Greece. Those are real conversations to have with people. After, and I highlight the word after, we've come to know who those people are and what kind of functions those idols serve in their culture, in their faith system, whatever it is. If we want to live as resurrection people, if we want to be people who recognize what God has done for us, and if we want to be people who recognize what God is asking us to do, we don't do that. We don't do that by pounding down on other people. We don't do that by pounding down with other people. We also don't do that by not saying anything. There is a spectrum. There is a time to stand up. There is a time to speak. There is a time to share. But how we do that is critically important. What I mean is we do that in relationship. We live out and share our faith as resurrection people by demonstrating God's love and God's grace and God's mercy in our actions, in our desire for relationship with other people. And we then let the flow of those relationships dictate and lead us in to natural conversations about different tenets and doctrines of faith and different perspectives. All the while seeking to find God in the other. All the while being open to learning as much as we're sharing. That two-way flow of a relationship is the whole thing. We get that wrong, forget about it. Engaging in mudslinging over culture war issues, trying to slap up Ten Commandments in classrooms, trying to legislate Christianity does not put on display the love and grace and mercy of God. It does not create relationship. Those things do not point people to the life-giving reality of the resurrection. They just don't. Those things, my friends, those things are done in relationship, one at a time. Engaging with people where they're at, meeting their needs, learning from their lives. That's how those conversations come about naturally. That's how those people are convinced that you care about them more than you care about telling them the thing that you know. And that's the example Paul paints for us here. He doesn't spell it out and say, here's the step-by-step directions on how to go into a secular atmosphere and share share the gospel. He just does it. He just lives it out. He lets his actions speak as loudly as his words do. Yes, he preaches. Yes, he advocates for the faith. Yes, he debates with secular intellectual elites. But he does so in a way that engages them where they're at in their culture while demonstrating how much he cares about them. And that is what we're all called to do. That is who we are called to be. Wherever we fit on that spectrum, 
from the Paul end to the Francis end, wherever we're at, it's important that we approach those interactions understanding the importance of relationship, understanding how crucial that is. And that is how we live lives as resurrected people in a secular world. Amen? Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.